serving as one of the elders here at Cross Train. And as we were listening to the things that were going on, and I heard Taylor and Farron talking about the story and talking about how her teacher was here today and seeing the fruit of that. And then she tells a story, I thought, of course, of course we're talking about persecution today. Of course we're going to talk about persecution. And, you know, every time I think about persecution, you think about it from a movie standpoint. Because we really don't understand what that means. And here's what I was thinking as they're telling the story. What she relayed was like a movie. There's a hero. And they come and they give this great message. And people start believing in the message. And then somebody has this horrible tragedy. And then the way the movie ends is somehow in 90 minutes or less, right, the, the, the theme, the, the protagonist wins, and the theme is victory and celebration, and yet we didn't hear that. What we heard was, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happened. And here's, here's, here's the movie I was thinking about. When she's saying this, I was thinking about this movie. I was thinking about this words at the end. It is finished. And when Jesus said it is finished, the persecution of his life that was the culmination, and that's our ending. And everything that happens from there, everything that happens from that moment is hope and victory and redemption and promise-keeping. So I, thank you very much. That wasn't in my notes. So if the way things are going, we're going to be here for a couple hours today. i got a bunch of stuff like that going on. So we're going to be in this section in Matthew 2 that we have been in here for the past couple weeks. And as you read, as you read with Mark, as he read the passage, you saw there's a couple things going on here today. Um, the, the question of the day that we're going to get to, the question of the day is what is the point of the persecution? And if I didn't have that question already set up, literally after hearing what they said, that would be the question I would ask. What is the point of the persecution? Because you literally answered it. I feel like I should sit down. I actually told my wife, well, there you go, because the point is to bring glory to God, so we should just all go and praise Jesus, right? But there's something more going on here, and I get the pleasure to unpack some of that with you today. So before we get into the text, I want to ask you something. Turn over your notes to the talking points, and I want to ask you the first talking point. And if you didn't get notes, you can get them with somebody for you, or you can read up on the screen. What do we think persecution is? How do we see it in our world, and what has it become? So I'm asking for responses. What do you think it is, how do we see it, and what does it become? Fires in Pakistan, right, that's persecution. Were you saying something, Audra? Suffering. Suffering for Christ. So she specifies the suffering for Christ. Mm. Jamie said mother turns against daughter, father turns against son. So the most intimate relationships start to break apart, although it is noteworthy on the marriage retreat weekend to point out that husband and wife is never something that is shown in the Bible to ever be torn apart because that is an exact representation of Christ and his church, but I digress. So persecution, right? How do we see it in our world? What is, okay, the eager student in front, Doug, go ahead. What does it become? Ah, should I even say that out loud? For everybody online, get ready. This is the one you want to you clip and put somewhere. I disagree with you, you disagree with me, oh, that's it, I'm persecuted. Oh, my little sensibilities. 
Oh, right? And I will save my commentary. But yes, there's certainly some of that that goes on as well. But we're going to see something today in the text. And, and my hope is that by the time we're done today, you will have a better sense of really what persecution was for Joseph and Mary. Why that actually, that story, as we unpack it just through these 10 verses, why that story helps us immensely to see everything in our own life going on. Why Taylor and Farron, I pray, will get special encouragement on the, what is it, 19-hour trip back down to wherever, I don't know, whatever it is, a couple plane trips, whatever it's going to be. So we start seeing these different solutions, and that's the point today. So we're going to start to see what the persecution points to by two training truths today. Two training truths that will come up on the screen. The hostility for the king will be our first point, and the humility of our king is our second. But the hostility of our king is where we're going to spend most of our time. So as we start, I want to give us, I want to kind of anchor where we're going to be. So the upside-down kingdom, that thought is what's driving. If you look over here, the kingdom of heaven, that picture right there that Pastor Doug talked about a couple weeks ago, there's a reason the crown is upside down. The New Testament was upside down as we see our world today, and God turned heaven upside down by giving the king to us in Jesus. And even Matthew, a Jewish tax collector hated by his own people, is the one that God chooses to give the message of Jesus here in the opening of the New Testament. But here's where we've been so far. Chapter 1 gives us a genealogy look of Jesus through David and Abraham. He was called a son by both. It highlights Mary, to whom Jesus was born. And that was important. As you recall, there's a reason in genealogy, as it goes through the three sets of 14 generations, why Mary is pointed out. And then we see the legacy from Abraham all the way to Jesus. The, the Jews that Matthew's going to talk to, the Jews would relate to this. They saw their lineage as Jewish people going through Abraham and Moses and David. And so what Matthew's doing is saying, yeah, and now it goes through Jesus. Let me pull you forward. In fact, on August 13th, Doug talked about this in verses 18 through 25, when it was hardest to remember what it looked like when the king has come. And if you haven't heard that message, I really recommend you go to crosstrain.church and just listen to that message. It's a great message that really unpacks that. So as the conception and birth of Jesus took place in chapter 1, we see how an upside-down king born to a peasant teenager look like and what it cost Joseph and Mary. And Doug reminded us of something. I had to write it down at the time. It really stuck out to me. His quote was, the story of Jesus is the completion of the Old Testament story. That's the truth. And that's how we ended chapter 1. And moving into the first part of chapter 2, we had news of the king of the Jews is spread, right? We heard last week about what happens with Herod and, and what happens when that news goes out? And what happens when these scholars, these, these magi, were brought in to go and, and really, per Herod, spy and find him so that he could have him killed? We saw what true worship looked like. We saw that even though we think about we three kings of Orient are, that there, there probably could be more of these magi, these, these kings, this entourage going to worship. And then we see how God in his providence and his sovereignty takes that group of people and says, okay, as elevated as you are, you're going to kneel. You're going to kneel in front of this baby. You're going to kneel in front of, of this little boy, and you're going to worship him. Once that they were confronted with the truth of Jesus, 
the scholars could never return to their life. In fact, again, their life was turned upside down and their kingdom was set correctly by Jesus. So that brings us to today. Pastor and author and teacher Warren Wearsby said, we have little control over the circumstances of life. We can't control the weather, the economy, and we can't control what other people say about or do to us. There's only one area we have control. We can rule the kingdom inside. The heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. Now, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but the buildup to that, the heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. I would tell you that for me, that is a very real thing. And I want to get you to think about the problem of the heart here for Joseph and Mary as we jump back into Matthew and consider where your heart motives are going to be anchored today and what we do with what we hear. So that is all built up leading us to our first point. So if you're not in Matthew, go to Matthew 2. We're going to start in verse 13. I'm going to unpack 13 through 18 through two separate ideas. 13 through 18, and we're going to look at the first few verses In the section. So verse 13 starts this way. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there till I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and he left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill. What had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So in those first three verses, after being celebrated and then gifted with more wealth than they'd ever seen before, as as Pastor Doug talked about last week, they're being prepared for this journey. Joseph is visited by an angel. This is the third time in this section in Matthew 2. This is actually the third time. There are five times an angel visits Joseph, specifically in dreams. This is the third time. And the angel says, get up and flee to Egypt. Now, there's a sense there of immediacy, right? There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of immediate obedience. I want you to think about what happens when an angel confronts you. Now, how would that go for us? If you had a dream where an angel said these things, you'd probably wake up. I have some crazy dreams, and I wake up sometimes in the morning, and you know, my sweet wife is downstairs doing her devotions, and she's drinking coffee. I'm like, you're not going to believe I had this dream, and it was so real. And she's like, but it's not real. Go have your fully caffeinated coffee <laughs> like a real man. And go ahead. I, I'm playing. I'm playing. I need my caffeine. I'm derailing the thought. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm persecuting him. That's, that's all this is. If an angel, right, right. Thank you very much, snowflakes. So listen. Let me get on track. This was, I was a horrible distraction. I apologize. An angel of the Lord comes and interrupts Joseph and gets him moving. And there's an immediacy. And here's the thing. It's important to note that the angel was never focused on Joseph or Mary. Look back at the text. The angel was never focused on Joseph. The angel didn't come and say, hey, Joseph, save yourself. By the way, take your family. That would be super. No, no. The angel of the Lord said, get up and take the child. The focus is always on Jesus. You have to get this. When you're reading the Bible, I really want to challenge you. When you're reading the Bible, here's something that years ago I was challenged by another teacher. Said, have your focus, your filter always be on Jesus and see what the Bible shows you. I thought, well, that's cute. I guess I'll do that. 
And then I, I, I've been through the Bible numerous times, and every time when I see Jesus there, I see him more and more and more. And it is all about Jesus. It's always ever been about Jesus. It's always going to be about Jesus today, and it will be about Jesus when every knee bows later, persecuted or not. Amen? So the angel says, get up and take the child to Egypt. He's getting some, some inside knowledge. Because Jesus, again, has always been the point He's always been the point of the persecution. He's always been the point of the preservation. And you can't forget that. Jesus was always persecuted. And how do I know that? Well, let me show you some different things. This is how the entire story began in the beginning. So I'm going to run through some Bible verses for you. And because I get accused of speaking quickly, even without caffeine, here's what I will tell you. Make a note of some of these Bible verses and go back later. And when you go back later and read these verses, I want you to look for Jesus in these verses. You're going to find them. Genesis 3, 14 through 15. And it reads, God holds Satan and Adam accountable. This is the, the, the theme of this. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is talking about after the fall and about what Jesus, what's going to happen when Jesus comes. And then again, we see Paul in the New Testament refer to this specifically in the book of Romans as the affirmation to people who lived a life for Christ. He says in Romans 16, near the end of the book of Romans, verse 20, the God of peace, love, joy, peace, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's a direct correlation to what we read in Genesis, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. But one of the best tie-ins that we can see about this specific section is found from the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea, in chapter 11, verse 1, now you got to get this. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. We just read this in this section. This is where Matthew's drawing from, this Hosea 11 passage. And we're going to unpack it a little bit more. But even in Numbers... So if you remember, so you Old Testament people, who was credited with authoring the book of Numbers? See, this, Moses, that's right. It's an ongoing learning here, right? So Moses, first five books of the Bible in Numbers 24, verse 8, it shows that while Israel was wandering the wilderness for 40 years, God was specifically calling his people and calling his shot. It reads, God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries and will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. This is actually a part of this, this prophet, Balaam, who was called to prophesy against Israel. He was called to prophesy against Israel, and the Lord's like, no, 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 check this out. So cool that you're the one to talk. Let me give you my words. And this is part of that, and Balak, the king, was going, that's not what I wanted to hear. That is not what I wanted to hear. Balaam's prophecy is on his seed, his king, and his kingdom, and it refers to Israel. This is the key, and it's very specific. And as you can hear from these Old Testament verses and some New Testament verses, the Spirit directs Matthew to relate this history. Because for these people, you've got to get this, right? For the Jewish people, they would have known their Old Testament history. We talk about that in the genealogy. They're going to learn from Moses and Abraham and David. They're going to track their lineage. And if they're good little Jewish boys and girls, they're going to know this history. And when Matthew, who they can't stand to give them this information, points that back in their face, they're like, 
what do I do with that? He's, you know, they, they're going like, it's like, he's right, but what do we do with that? And that's the question I'm going to ask you. What do we do with that? Right? So you see this history. You see that Matthew presses into him to show that not only is this the history, but that Jesus is the fulfillment of that history. And that what are you going to talk about here? And he unpacks it more through the next couple of chapters. That's really going to show, guess what? You better be out. If you're on this ride from the beginning, little Jewish boys and girls, then you're on this ride to the end with Jesus. And it's got to be that way. And let me prove it to you over and over and over. Oh, and then the words of Jesus are recounted. So good luck with that. And if you have a problem with the things I'm saying, I encourage you to speak to me after you take it up with God because I didn't write it. Okay? Jesus replaces Israel. And Jesus represents the people of the world that were called out of sin and into his grace. Jesus is a better Moses. Jesus is a better Abraham. Jesus is a better king, the king. He's a better David. It's all about Jesus. So for us, think about the tie-in. Joseph and Mary are running completely on faith. You figure by the third time an angel talks to Joseph, he's got to be like, all right. <laughs> Maybe the first time you're freaked out. Second time you go, me again. Third time you go, what's going on here? Can you talk to her? But he's getting up and he's going on faith. And the angel told him to go into an amazing story. And how much more amazing is it that we have the God of everything, his spirit inside of us. And this is what I'm going to tell you. When, when Joseph relies upon a dream, we have the spirit of God that says, go left, go right. The spirit of God inside us says, go, stay, walk, run, be missionaries, be students, be, be wherever you are. That's the spirit of God if you're his. And I'm telling you right now, that spirit right there is a better version. It is, to quote from our marriage retreat, this is a better way. Jesus' spirit is a better way. And listen, this means, and I'll be real honest with you, this means every place you go that's helping sick kids, or you have people that are gone here, helping families, trying to find work, grieving for a lost dad, right? Everywhere is exactly where God has you, and that's important. And it's super important for Joseph and Mary to remember that he is directing their life as he's directing ours. So in the first three verses, it's very rich, and it's anchored in some of this Old Testament history that you can go, wow, there's a lot of meat here, but we're not done. So once God moves his son to Egypt, Herod is going to find out that he missed his opportunity to kill him, right? So let's see what happens next. But Herod's hatred-filled heart is used to fulfill prophecy, and it leads to the second part of our first point. So get back into the word here, verses 16, and follow along as I read 16 through 18. Then when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. So after the Magi failed to come back, because he lies to them, sends them on a spy mission, God intervenes, moves them somewhere else. He tries to handle his sin with a bigger sin. I know 
we'll just kill all the males under two in Bethlehem. And as, as Doug pointed out last week, you know, when, when you hear this, not, not that killing one is okay, right? But there's a tendency, you talk to people, like, they killed 4,000 babies because Bethlehem is like Phoenix. It's not. You, you're, maybe 15 to 20 is what uh, historians would estimate in a town of Bethlehem. But, but yeah, it, especially now, she says. So you think about this, you, that's still 15 to 20. And just imagine what that would have looked like. So imagine what that would have looked like. So we got some of my police officer friends here, right? Imagine what that looks like if you are in this town, you're in your home, and all of a sudden, the government comes in. Well, let's, let's make it real. Let's make it real for us. The government comes in with assault rifles. They grab all the kids under two, and they execute them. It's hard, right? Just even in your mind, like, I don't want to go to that place. And I don't want to go to that place. And this is what happened. This is the reality of what happened. But I'm telling you right now, when you, when you think about how Matthew's going to use the history, he ties the Jews right back in that emotion. Because what he did there is he pulled forward from Jeremiah. And he's talking about how Jacob and Rachel, because they would have tied into that, and Rachel dies giving birth. And the son that Rachel named originally, it was Rachel's name for her son that she died giving birth to was a son of sorrows, Benoni. Now Jacob changes that name to Benjamin, which means he sits at my right hand. Sound familiar? And so now you look at Jesus being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who sits at the right hand of his father. It is not a coincidence. God, I get a little goosebumps. God was calling his shot from Genesis to the, to the death of Rachel, to using Herod. All of this is designed for one purpose, and that is to give Jesus the glory. That's all it's about. And because of his coming, there's going to be a future deliverance for Israel. And David's throne now has been replaced by Jesus. And we as Christians are now Israel. And so we get to see what the upside-down kingdom looks like in our life because of everything that Matthew's talking about. And let me tell you something. With as long-winded as I'm getting on this, he would have said that, and everybody would have stopped, and they would have just looked at him, and they would have been captivated because they would have exactly knew, they would have known exactly what he meant, and they would not have been happy. But again, what do you do with it? It's the truth. It's their truth that they've accepted, and everybody's listening to it. And so when Matthew writes to remind the Jewish people that Jesus is the better Moses, the better Abraham, the better Jacob, the better David, he, he is the king. When he writes this, you think, okay, well, how do we stop it? The, the rulers want to stop this, which brings us to our second talking point. So turn your notes over. Our second talking point. How do you deal with people who attack you just to protect themselves or protect their title, position, or kingdom. So I'm asking, because I had a conversation with one of my brothers this week about this. Somebody was attacking, and he wanted to crush them, and take their soul, right? How do you deal with that? How do you guys deal with that? How would you deal with that? See, I would love to maybe make a joke or something about this, but what my sweet sister Kim said, she lives out in her life. She said kindness. That's how I deal with persecution. It's not how I would deal with it. It's how Kim would deal with it. 
So thank you. Anyone else? I can't hear. Oh, you guys are really spiritual. I know. Like, I just want people to be real. No, what actually Jamie said, again, she lives it out in her life, paying, repaying evil with good. Okay, I, I love that. Michelle. I, she's, Michelle said pray for them. Right? So we have kind, kind deeds, praying people. Anybody just want to punch someone in the face like me? Right? That's like, right? Anybody want to like raise a horn? Right? I mean, it is, it drives me crazy because my default is aggression. My default's anger. When I'm, when I'm bumped, it's anger. When I'm happy and I don't want to be happy anymore, it's anger. Everything like runs to anger. And I totally get that about myself. And when I'm persecuted, I just want to lash out. How do you deal with that? Is that how Jesus dealt with it? It's not. It's not. So we'll pray for people and we'll, Repay evil with good and be kind, I guess. That's what we'll do. <laughs> but here's the thing. God doesn't waste one single moment, does he? God doesn't waste anything for us. So for us, think about this. All these experiences, all of them that have been good and bad in our lives, all of them, God shows us something. His heart is that we would take everything, ready for this, and use it to show one filter, that Jesus is a better way. Jesus is a better way. Matthew says, you want to know what it's like to be a hated tax collector? You guys don't even like me, and yet I can't stop talking about the things I've seen and heard. Jesus is a better way. And they're going, who is this Jesus? Because it's why, why me, and thank you. That's what gratefulness does. So we see in these first few verses the richness of the history that's brought up by Matthew that God uses Joseph and Mary. He uses Joseph and Mary to bring his son to Egypt to fulfill prophecy. We see how the hostility of a king through Herod wants to persecute Jesus, but now watch how God continues his faithful plan in the next section that I've called the humility of our king. So back in the text, verse 19, follow along. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go in the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in a place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So before we, we break this down a little bit, I want you to just think about something. Pastor Doug had led into it last week. Um, I thought when he started talking about who this, this character of King Herod the Great was, when he started talking about it, that there would be nothing left for me to talk about, right? But it turns out this man is so much more horrible than what he could describe that we just want to highlight a couple different things here. In the last years, Herod the Great suffered from arteriosclerosis. So his artery was just hardening. So he had to put down a revolt. He became in, uh, involved in a war with his neighbors. He lost the favor of Rome. The protection was taken away. He was in great mental and physical pain because of many, many different things. He changed his will three times to bring different people in and out. He finally was so upset 
as we learned last week, he disinherited and then killed his son. He killed many of his children. The murder shortly before his death of all the infants in Bethlehem was consistent with this complete disarray. It was consistent for him. He's just like, if I'm going scorched earth, I'm taking everybody with me. He eventually divides up his realm. So Archelaus takes Judea. Philip and Antipas were other kids. They, they had the remaining of the area as tetrarchs. So even his hostility, right? So even with all that, even they were doing everything, not only did it not frustrate God's plan, God wasn't going, ah, oh, he calls himself great. Like, how do I deal with that? Right? God's like, just you do you, boo. Right? Because what God was doing is letting Herod be Herod so that Jesus could come on the stage and fulfill everything from the prophets, plural. Which brings us now to Joseph and Mary. So Joseph and Mary, they're in Egypt, starting a new life, you know, again, right? And now they got this little toddler running around, named Jesus, doing his thing. They're raising this toddler king for a year, and now an angel comes and says, hey, those who saw the child's life are gone. Come back. Now, I just want you to think about that. All right, we won't get into the process of what it's like to get a moving company and figure this out when there aren't vehicles, right? But you, think about this. They're, they're settled, and they're like, okay, we're, we're, we're walking with you, Lord. We trust you. We trust you. And then the angel comes again, and Joseph's like, well, why wouldn't you? Sure. And you get up and go, and he gets up and goes immediately because he was told to protect the child, right? Take the child and the mother. So... Verse 21, they get to Israel, they find out, right, that Herod's crazy, angry kid is now in charge of the place you're supposed to go. And my thought when I was reading this, I was like, God, why didn't you just use your angel to tell them, by the way, you probably shouldn't go there, you should go over here, right? If God is so specific that he calls his shot from Genesis to this moment, why did the angel of the Lord not say, oh, hey, so God told me this thing, do this. And you, by the way, if you read the Bible, you can ask why. You're allowed to ask God why. But here's the thing. In the persecution, what God was showing Joseph and Mary was, you know what? You need to trust me. I'm moving you all around my earth, and I just want you to trust me. Yeah, but, no, no. Yeah, but live in the forest. I need you to trust me. But I don't understand. How could I share the gospel? And then this man is killed. Yeah, you just need to trust me. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it's for my glory, just trust me. And so he moves them, and they just say, okay, we're just going to go. And if you think about it, think about the parallel, right, that Matthew's already set up using these Old Testament characters. In Exodus 4.19, make a note of this, Exodus 4.19, it talks about Moses. And, and so Joseph is told to have courage and faith and leave Egypt. Moses is told to have courage and return back to Egypt. By the way, go tell everybody. He's like, no, 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 no. And God goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It, it's the same. And in both cases, God's program of redemption is what preserved his lineage because it's all about what Jesus is going to do. It's all about God. And the whole episode is how God leads his children. Right? Joseph and Mary certainly were religious. They prayed. And probably, you know, to, I love the prayer time today, probably exactly like Doug led us. Probably with themselves, quiet, saying, I don't know what to do. Show me this. And I still don't know what to do, but God, show me this. I can't deal with the high-spirited toddler. Show me this, right? And these prayers, like that is what Joseph and Mary 
were doing. And common sense told them, don't go. Faith told them to wait and see. And then they acted. They just went. They obeyed. So they go back to Nazareth, which as we see later was their home earlier. But even that fulfilled prophecy, every single thing that has been done fulfilled the law and the prophets. Everything. And there, this is a, a familiar phrase if you've read your New Testament. So the, you see the humility of Christ in this. I'm going to show you how. In verse 23, it reads, And they came and lived in a city called Nazareth. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He should be called a Nazarene. Now we don't see anywhere in Scripture, like you, don't, you don't see people called Nazarenes. You, you, don't. You, you don't. Doug talked about this a couple weeks ago. And again, check out the message. It, what that meant in Scripture, what was going to mean for Jesus and why this was pointed out, it, it was his label of persecution for his whole life. And if you think I'm kidding, let me tell you this. So Nazareth was the spot where the Roman garrison was located. So it was where they had like the majority of the troops. It's like their like Luke Air Force Base in Nazareth. So anybody that was in Nazareth, the Jewish people believed, well, you're a sympathizer you are somebody that's going to be a traitor to your people. And I'm not really, I don't have the courage to tell you that, but I'm going to go ahead and, and just assume that we've got to be quieter on this guy. He's a Nazarene, right? They didn't, they didn't trust him. They didn't want him around. They weren't invited to parties, right? The, everybody there was shunned and viewed with contempt. And it's significant that Matthew uses this time to say, he shall be called a Nazarene. It's very, very significant. And Again, to see just how impactful that was and how far the hatred goes 30 years later. So when Jesus, as a man, is in his ministry, and we'll see this, right? And he goes out, and it's, it's actually in John 146, you want to make a note. It says when, when Jesus is calling his disciples, and he calls them one by one, and he gets to Philip, and Philip says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? No, I will confess, I didn't know this. Before I started studying, I didn't know that that's the history of what this meant. Figure like, well, it's a small town, so can any good? No. The hatred for the people of Nazareth, 30 years later, immediately, it wasn't like, Nazareth, Nazareth. Is that like Chandler? Like, where is that? No, no. Immediately. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Scoffing. Because he knew nothing good comes from Nazareth. They don't trust any of those guys. And if you remember, what, 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 what is the response? Come and see. Come and see. So let's continue to come and see what the Lord has for us. I'm going to start trying to land this plane here. I want to invite the music team up. And we're going to do communion today at our tables again. So the community people want to start with that. But I want to just kind of summarize for you about this idea of persecution. We have Herod the Great, who is just used by the great God, his hostility for our king was our first area. The humility of our king is our second area. Our Lord Jesus, he grew up in Nazareth. He was identified with that city. In fact, his enemies later on, John 7, and you can look this up, but his enemies actually thought he was born there. And if they checked the temple records, they would see, well, he wasn't even born there. He was born in Bethlehem. But here's the thing. Who ever heard of a king born in a humble place like Bethlehem. And whoever heard of a king, and Doug talks about it, an unannounced visit from a king over and over again. Whoever heard of that? Whoever heard of an entire 
group of people that were the leaders going to visit somebody in a stable or in a town or, better yet, in a cave. And who ever heard of a king that had to run for his life before he was even born and as a little kid who was sought for death? Who ever heard of that? The humility of our king wasn't just a characteristic. It was a purposeful, prophecy-fulfilling commitment from God to his son and from his son to us. This section shows us the answer to the question of the day, what's the point of our persecution? By seeing both hostility against our king and the humility, we see that the persecution is not the point. It's what Taylor started with. And as they're on their trip, they're leaving there, they're, it, it's what we end with. The point of the persecution is to give us a chance to show God's glory. It was to give God a chance to reveal through Matthew the history of where this all started. Oh, and by the way, here's the teaser about where it's going. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew just says, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? And he was get out of his way. Because I will, I will promise you this as we start thinking about how we're going to move with this knowledge through our week. We hit what we aim at. We hit what we aim at. And if you focus on the persecution, if you focus on the trouble, if you focus on wham, wham, me, well, he didn't agree with me, so now I'm, I'm really upset. You focus on that, you will hit that every time. When you focus your filter on Jesus, you'll hit that every time. And even when we stumble, he's there to go, no, my son, I got you. I got you. Serving others in humility brings glory to people like me and you who are joyfully called Nazarene, okay? Turn your notes over for our last talking point. The application on this for us is massive. We are all wronged in our ones who do wrong. We all get hurt in our ones who do their hurting. And as a humble Nazarene following Christ, God's question to us is simple. What is my next step in faith for my king and his kingdom? And during this song of response now, before communion, I want you to write down one thing you can do right now for this week to make Jesus brighter in your life while serving somebody else. I want you to see Jesus as the filter in your pleasure, in your persecution, and in your pain. Please pray with me. Father God, where you've taken us today in your word is just the beginning. And as David wrote in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Lastly, Lord, you had David write, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The 
commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. And Father, that's where we end. That's where we start. And it's where we travel. We don't have the answers. We don't understand situations where people take unprovoked attacks at us. We don't understand why we don't have enough money to pay our bills. We don't understand why we don't have the job. We don't understand why we get fired. We don't understand why we get sick. We don't understand why our dads get cancer and die. We don't understand. But your word is perfect. And your testimony is sure. And you make wise our simple questions because you let us see not only was it never about us, but it is always about you. And it is that name of Jesus that I pray and all God's people said.